Hey everybody, this is Reagan Canope. Welcome back to the Oregon Bridge. I got elected through that process because other people bought into the idea that I would do a good job more so than I was fascinating to anybody. The couple people I convinced then were my champions. I wish we could get some serious people to run for the U.S. Senate. Somebody that lives in Oregon, somebody that's from Oregon, somebody that shares Oregon values. When you look at how much of our state is forest, it's 50% of the state. The fact of the matter, there are more trees in Oregon today than there have ever been in the history of the state. There's no greater inspiration than Ronald Reagan. Like, there just isn't. All right, folks. Today, our guest is State Representative Daniel Bonham, representing House District 59 and running for State Senate District 26. Reagan, give us a little info about Rep. Bonham. Yeah, I got to know Rep. Bonham, kind of working in the Capitol, and he's a great guy. Grew up in Tigard, Ben. Big fan of Tigard, being Great from place. Tigard. We Great learned place. about that. We learned about his time at uh, Linfield College, where he met his wife, Lori. Business degree, director of marketing for Evergreen International Aviation, not the museum, because I was confused. Moved to the Dallas, bought mopping stoves and spas. He's been a small business owner. Got appointed to the legislature, and now he's running for state senate. His background was super interesting to me, and I think everyone else will really enjoy this, too. Yeah, I think a couple interesting bits. One, he has some very strong feelings about Ron White. Not a big fan. And he he's pretty harsh about the senator, who I think we all agree is going to be overwhelmingly reelected for the, you know, I don't know, fifth time, fourth time. Pretty popular guy, but Rep. Bonham doesn't like him, or at least disagrees with his style of campaigning this cycle. But alternatively, seems to be a huge fan of Peter Michael Coleman Courtney. So we get under the hood on how Rep. Bonham views two major figures in Oregon Democratic politics. Talk about his background. We talk about the issues he's hearing on the doors in his own community and how that shifted from primary to general. So I thought it was a really interesting conversation. I enjoyed the opportunity to, to chat with him. Reagan, what was your takeaway? I think my biggest takeaway is that he gets focused when he's working on something, whether it was his business or running for a legislature, man, it just feels like he's got that laser focus. And when he was here with us, he was a laser focused on this conversation and trying to give us a lot of information, in a little bit of time, which I think is awesome. And my favorite fun fact about him is he is a former podcaster, hoping that he comes back to podcasting at some point. But we talk about that too. People should check out his currently in sleep mode, I suppose, podcast, Main Street Politics with Daniel Bonham. He recorded a bunch of episodes in 2019 with some pretty good and pretty interesting figures in Oregon politics. Last note, I will say kudos to him for coming on the pod in the peak of campaign season in a relatively competitive legislative district. If you are a candidate for the state legislature in a relatively competitive district and you want to come on the podcast, let us know. We would love to have you on. We're probably going to have a handful of episodes recorded before Election Day. We might do, if we have extra content, we might do a couple in a week. We might stick with weekly. But if you're interested in coming on, we would love to, we'd love to talk with you. So with that, let's get to the interview with Representative Daniel Bonham. All right, Representative Daniel Bonham, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thank you, Ben. Thanks, Reagan, for having me. Appreciate you guys. Reagan, I believe this is where you wanted to insert your one-liner. 
Oh gosh, what did I even write in my notes here? I've, I'm trying to arrange my screens because I forgot to do it. Daniel Bonham is my second favorite redhead in the legislature after my father, Senator Tim Cano. The redheaded caucus power in Oregon is now ever expanding. Perhaps the worst delivery of a one-liner in podcast history, but it's a pretty funny joke, so we'll allow it. My, where I wanted to start, Representative, is is it true that you have some, some roots in Tiger? Is that accurate? Absolutely. Class of 95. So no I grew kidding. up in, back behind Tiger Treadmire, went to Fowler Junior High. We weren't even middle school. We were junior high. I was there the year we split Tiger Twalton. Mm-hmm. So back then, you know, they gave us the choice where we wanted to go. And I'm the youngest of six kids. Most of my brothers and sisters, you know, bounced around California growing up, but we moved to Tiger when I was a year old. And so all of us at that point then graduated from Tiger High. So I was the sixth those six Bonham kids coming through. So by the time I got there, you know, people were like, oh, another Bonham. <laughs> <laughs> so my main question here is, you know, you, you basically won the lottery. You were raised in the best place in Oregon in Tigard, and then you left. So can you explain where, where your life diverged and you ended up in your current district? Yeah, and, and I really did love growing up in Tigard. Like, it was a great time to be there. You know, I grew up in a generation where we played kick the can. Uh, the mm-hmm. parents did tell us to go outside and play until the street lights came on and that's when it was time to come home. Like that was my generation, the big wheels and all that stuff, playing flag football out in the streets, touch football, whatever out in the streets, you know, run to the car, run to the car and then come this way. And so we did all that stuff and, and then uh, graduated from Tigard and went to Linfield College. Mm. So down in McMinnville, I'd gone down there for like a church camp, fellow Christian athlete, fellowship of Christian athletes had a camp there. And I just, I thought the campus was cool. It was far enough from home to feel like I left for school and close enough to where if I needed to do laundry on a weekend, I could call my mom and say, can you come get me? And <laughs> I'd love a home-cooked meal, stuff like that. So I went to Linfield. I met my wife my sophomore year, her freshman year at the bowling alley. There was like the welcome week. Everybody <laughs> and so we got there early and it was my friend Joe Burks and I were just bowling by ourselves. And then she and her friend Carissa started bowling in the lane next to us. And then people started shuffling in and she's like, maybe we should bowl together and give room for more people. I was like, perfect. Like, yes. <laughs> great idea. Yeah. Singles yeah. bowling becomes doubles bowling. It was great. It was great. Yeah. We hit it off and we basically started dating that week. And two years later to the day we got married and I stayed, you know, in the area, we built a house in McMinnville. Then we built a house in Dayton. And so I worked at Evergreen airlines in McMinnville for seven years and then one day, Lori just, you know, she was tired of the, the mold, the mildew, the clouds, the rain, the depression you go through every winter when you don't see the sun for, <laughs> and the allergies she didn't have growing up. And so I said, well, this, you know, this is Oregon weather. You know, what are you, what are you thinking? You're thinking like California, Arizona? And she said, no, just the other side of the Cascades. <laughs> the Dalles is her hometown. You know, we looked at Bend, we looked at Redmond, we looked at Madras, we looked at the Dalles and... And she found a couple businesses for sale in the Dalles that we thought we could make a go of. And, and so we did. And, and 15 years later, I'm here still running my small business. Our kids are grown now. Our kids are 24 and 22. They both go to school down in Phoenix. And so, yeah, this, this is where we are now. And this is why we left Tigard. I, I still go back. And I will say the one thing I don't miss is the congestion. If you're in your car out. <laughs> That's true. For 60 minutes, you just went 60 miles. You might have gotten from one end of 217 to the other. But yeah, it's a different 
pace of life out here and it kind of reminds me of when i grew up in tigard yeah. yeah well to 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 prove your point we're recording this podcast 10 minutes late today in part because on my drive home i you remember durham road i'm sure of course. uh right off of tigard high school well durham road is the site of the tigard high homecoming parade today yeah. oh. so just imagine friday afternoon traffic but without <laughs> durham road that's where we are today uh. so. <laughs> so my junior year in that parade we took, we made a float, we put a hammock on the back and I borrowed the tiger mascot. Yeah. And so, was, you know, there I was with that huge tiger head. They're trying to, <laughs> trying, to, trying to put me in the hammock. I fell out multiple times and ultimately walked the parade. But yeah, that was my junior year. That was fun. Were you, were you like a leadership kid in high school? Like what did, is, are people surprised you're in politics or they were like, of course, Bonham's in politics. I got in trouble at my 20 year reunion for talking politics with somebody. And that, <laughs> that was before I was in office. And I remember we were just sitting and somehow, you know, I mean, things I talk about Jesus and politics, I just do. And so one of my friends was talking to me about uh, some national political thing. And, and another girl came over and like slammed the table. And she's like, this is our 20 year reunion. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> so, I wasn't in politics at the time. I think now, you know, a few years later, they're probably not surprised now. Cool, cool. Yeah. Reagan? So you were director of marketing for Evergreen Aviation Museum, or no, tell me, fix that for me, because I, I have it wrong in my notes here. So it's kind of, so my first job, you know, I was 21, I didn't know anything, and I just graduated, we had a kid, and so it was like, I gotta, I gotta go find a job. And so I went out, I applied at Evergreen, and literally, I walked in the day of my interview, and Dell Smith, who was the founder and chairman of the company, saw me come through the front door. And literally, he's like, you must be Dan. And I'm like, okay. Thankfully, the internet existed. So I had looked up <laughs> who Dell Smith was, right? Like I had read his bio. And he was an impressive dude. And so he literally came out and he sat down on the front, like there were leather couches kind of in the foyer of the office building he was in. And, and we sat down there and, and about 930, and I got there probably at 745, every morning Evergreen had seven o'clock meetings. So he was coming out of that meeting when he saw me come in. And so I was supposed to meet the guy at 830 or at eight, at eight. And I got there at 745. So I came in, sat down, Dell comes out, greets me. We sit down. The dude that's supposed to interview me comes out at 930. And he's like, has anybody seen this kid I'm supposed to interview? And <laughs> Dell yells back. He's like, I've already, I've already got a guy. Like, <laughs> like, this is a done deal. And so I had that really cool interaction, like, you know, day zero before I even started. And so my job ultimately was to work with Mr. Smith. I, like I, I followed him around. I carried his bag. I went to meetings with him. When he traveled, I would go with him for a little while. And I did that for about six months. And then I transitioned to the sales and marketing team for the ground logistics company. So we did, okay. we did warehousing service it, it, like Lufthansa German airlines flies into Portland. It was our employee that greeted you wearing a Lufthansa uniform. So mm. instead of them buying the $2 million worth of ground handling equipment, you know, the pushback tractor and the main deck loader and all the things you need to handle an aircraft, you know, we had that equipment. We would service, you know, Mexicana Airlines, and then we'd service Lufthansa, and then we'd go service Southwest. And, you know, we were able to spread that that load over many flights a day and, and make it affordable to, to offer a good service at a reasonable price. And so people didn't have to invest and bring it from overseas to do their own work. And so we did that in uh, 
48 cities throughout the U.S. and a big postal service contractor as well. And then, of course, our sister company was an airline. Our other sister company was a helicopter company. So depending on what trip you were on and whether or not you were with Mr. Smith, uh, you had to be versed in all of the operating companies just in case he called on you and said, you know, how much was their sales last month and who's their new contract with? And oh, so wow. it, it was an exciting time. I, I have a few people in my life that had worked for Evergreen and moved on to like Nike, Intel. And when I was finishing it seven years, they're like, oh my God, that's like 21 years worth of experience. But now you're doing something totally different. You own and operate Moppin Stove and Spas. So what's the, how do you get from aviation and logistics to <laughs> stoves and spas? Well, I kind of already told you, it was, my wife just said, and we were driving over from church one day. And I remember because she said, she said, I'm done. And I thought, oh no. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh this no. Could go one of two ways. <laughs> yeah. Like I thought we were getting along just fine. And she's like, no, not with you with, with you know, the weather. <laughs> and so she walked me through, you know, the mold and mildew, the clouds, the rain, the depression and all that. And so I was like, well, what do you want to do? And, and she said, you know, if, if we could find a place east of the Cascades and we started looking for the small businesses. And I had always seen, you know, in fairness, Mr. Smith benefited the most out of any employee in terms of compensation. <laughs> Granted, he had all the risk, you know, he had yeah. four or $500 million worth of debt at one point and, and leveraging aircraft to try and keep people employed and trying to make a profit. But, but at the end of the day, you know, when he wanted to build a home for himself and spend $2 million, you know, the company just wrote the check and it happened. <laughs> and so I thought, wow, you know, someday I'd, I'd like to, <laughs> home to that, that looks like the place I'd like to be. And, you know, I, in my own mind, I think I thought like a $30 million aviation service company and my wife found mop and stoves and spas <laughs> million dollars in sales. And we moved out and we got to know the business and I just, it's been tremendous for us. Like the, the lifestyle that has afforded us, we work hard, we lift heavy things, we install things that, you know, are combusting logs or pellets or gas. And so we deal with dangerous things. And at the same time, we're really good at what we do. We've got a wonderful team that we work with. And with that said, it's allowed us to do things like coach basketball teams, coach soccer teams, and then ultimately, of course, run for the legislature and leave for five months at a time to go serve in the long session. And, and I've got employees that have backfilled and, and taken care of the business while we've been able to do that. And so it, it's been you know, the best decision outside of just, you know, marrying my wife, you know, moving to the Dows and taking on that business has just been tremendous for us. How big did you make the company? Sorry, Ben, this is my, I promise is my last question about okay. Daniel Bonham's business background, but it's fascinating <laughs> to me. So, so you took it from a million dollars in sales to what now? It was like 860 when we bought it. 860,000. And so the first year we took it over a million, which, you know, we thought that was crazy. Like we were so excited to do seven figures in sales and we'll do a little over two this year. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And at least until you get your tax bill, right, Ben. <laughs> yeah. I, and I do encourage everyone to follow at D Bonham 31 on Twitter, because occasionally you'll see pictures of pools he's installing, which is very <laughs> cool to see. I love yeah. those photos. So first a uh, back question going backwards. Did you have any when you were in the aviation world, did you have any interactions with the young Betsy Johnson when she was doing her helicopter thing? So no, but I'll tell you. So John Huffman resigned. It was published in the paper. And I had a friend, Tanner Elliott, here in town in the Dallas that was city councilor. And at one point I had asked him, I said, you know, are you 
politically ambitious? Do you want to do something more than be a city councilor? Or are you just providing this public service? And he said, no, I think someday maybe I'd like to be John Huffman. Mm-hmm. And in that you know short conversation we had, I, I remembered it, though, a couple of years later when I saw that article. And so I called Tanner and I said, hey, John's moving on. Are you going to throw your hat in the ring? And his two girls were, and I, I don't remember, at the, they might have been six and eight at the time. And he was like, that's ah, really not a good time for me to leave and, you know, tell my wife, hey, have fun raising the kids. He's like, but, you know, you should consider this. Mm. And I thought, hmm. Yeah, I never wanted my face on a billboard, right? I didn't go into mortgages or, or real estate because <laughs> yeah. myself, I don't really want to be known, but I wanted to do the work. And so my pitch to Tanner had been, I'll be your chief of staff. Like I'll run your campaign, uh... your staff, you go do the work. And he's like, I don't think we get a staff. I was like, yeah, you do. Like I, I know this well enough to know that you can hire me and I can go help you do the work and, and you can be the guy that has to go to the meetings and I can be the people behind the scenes that deal with the constituent issues and, and some of the policy wonky stuff. Anyway, long story short, he's like, you should do it. I called my wife. I said, Hey, I was having this conversation with Tanner and he said, I should do this. And she's like, she's like, don't you dare. (laughs) No, She was was on board. She's like, you should totally do it. You love the stuff. Uh, You really enjoy it. So like, that would be something right up your alley. So I called my kids and they were like, you should do this. I called John. He didn't answer. I left him a message. And then I called Rod Runyon, who is the county commissioner, because in the article it mm-hmm. said the county commissioners will make this appointment. So I called Rod and he was like, you need to get a hold of the PCP people. There's a process. And so I'm learning all this as I go. And this is like <laughs> Wednesday and the convention was Saturday. Oh, my God. So I went down to the convention on Saturday. I put on my suit and tie. I passed out a little flyer that I created for myself. And I convinced those people that I would make a good choice. And, uh, you know, again, learn politics at that meeting as well. I watched as I convinced a couple of PCP captains that I was the right guy. And then I watched them work the room for me. Like I got, I, I got elected through that process because other people bought into the idea that I would do a good job more so than I was super fast, uh, uh, fascinating to anybody. Like the couple of people I convinced then were my champions and, and I watched mm-hmm. it happen and it was a lesson I learned and, and have remembered well. But then the week in between that meeting and the commissioner appointment the following weekend was AOC down in Eugene. So the Mm -hmm. annual county commissioner conference. Mm -hmm. So I thought, oh my gosh, I get to go compel these people to vote for me. You know, I get to try and convince them that I'm the right guy. And and so I have the captive audience. They're all going to be in the same place. So I can go visit instead of having to drive out to Wheeler County and down to Deschutes and Jefferson to track these people down. They're all going to be in Eugene. Oh, that's, yeah. So I drove down there, right? And I took my little campaign material I put together and and I met Bill Hansel and talked to Bill for like an hour about what the job would be. And I connected with my county commissioners. And the final day, they're giving this presentation, this panel on wildfire. And this woman with these big glasses up on stage, I'm like, <laughs> familiar. Like she really, like I know this woman. And so her panel's done. They leave. Another panel goes up. They finish. Thank you all for coming. Goodbye. And I thought, oh, I should have found her before she left. Like, I'm sure she's gone by now. The room clears out. The only two people left in the room are Betsy Johnson and I. <laughs> and so I walked over to her and I was like, hey, Senator Johnson, like you mentioned in her spiel that you were one of the first female aviators to fly a helicopter and fight fire. I said, so who did you fly for? 
And she literally, she says, who the hell are you? She grabs my, <laughs> my name tag, you know, she and said, Daniel Bottom, like city budget committee. So I was serving on it. <laughs> yeah. that, was my, that was my credentials for getting into that meeting. And then she kind of threw it back at my chest. Like, why are you bothering me? And I said, I said, I, I, I just, you know, I was in aviation for a little while and you just seem so familiar. She said, well, who the hell did you work for? I said, I worked for Dell Smith. And she said, well, I served on Dell's board. And I literally did this to her. I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Your <laughs> was wow. he had all the board members' headshots outside of the boardroom. I said, so that's how I know you. I said, I don't think we ever really met, but I know who you are. And immediately, you know, for people that don't know Senator John, she's fantastic, but she does keep some things in her pocket <laughs> <laughs> around her chest. And so she reaches in trying to pull out a business card. And she said, I'm all out of business cards. She takes a scrap of paper and she writes you know betsy johnson she said i'm so sorry normally there's this little gold leaf emblem right here and she takes <laughs> he draws a little emblem and she said i hope that'll but she wrote her number on there and she said if you get through this process call me and so the following weekend it was a sunday and i i got through the process i called her and again she's like who the hell are you and i said i'm the guy that you know met that worked at evergreen and you know just like bill hansel did she took like an hour and a half to answer every question I had, you know, talked about the upcoming short session, said, listen, you're going to get down to Salem and I-84 is going to ice over and you're not going to be able to get home to see your wife. Make sure she knows that, you know, this job may carry over on some weekends and talk to your kids about the fact that they're going to read in Twitter about what a boob their dad is. Like just <laughs> warn them, she said, because I, I didn't necessarily get that warning mm -hmm. When Sam, her dad, was in the legislature, she's like, you know, I remember this one, you know, reserve the language. I won't say what she said, but she said there's one person that wrote an <laughs> article about my dad. And I can tell you his name to this day. And I remember him, you know, very vividly with with a lot of angst towards him to this day because he wrote some nasty things about my dad. No one had said, hey, this could happen. And so mm. very personal advice very family oriented, meant the world to me. Bill Hansel, again, the same thing. And so the first two legislators I met were just tremendously kind and have been absolutely wonderful mentors during my time in the building too. And that was Bill Hansel and Betsy Johnson? Yeah. That's cool. Wow. So I want to transition now to, so you got appointed to the state house. Uh, was that two terms in the state house or three? So I was appointed in November 17, elected in 18 and 20. And so okay. I'm running out for the Senate in 22. And so I was curious, because your Senate race, I think, you know, different people have different race ratings, but on paper, I think it's pretty close to even, right? In terms of Democrats and Republicans in the district. I imagine you're doing a lot of door-to-door, -door, maybe phone calls. You're certainly talking to constituents. What are people talking about right now? What are you hearing in, in your community that people are upset about or nervous about on the campaign trail? So affordable housing is a big one. Yeah. Uh, and it's and it's not just, you know, young people that are trying to start out, but parents of young people, grandparents of young people that are saying, how does a person getting started in life right now get into a home? Mm -hmm. That's probably number one. I, I'm probably hearing more about that than anything. And I, I was a little surprised by that. It's really transitioned from the primary. The primary was you know, a lot of election integrity, a lot of uh, homelessness and crime, uh, affordability. And, and those things are still out there. Like I will say, like none of those things have gone away. Like people haven't crossed those things off their list, but it feels like affordability 
and specifically tied to housing and housing supply is, is jumped to number one. And a close second is the homelessness and the crime drug issue that kind of goes along with homelessness that people are experiencing. And I, and I will say that it's hotter and heavier at one end of my district than the other. I hear more about the homelessness in general, but not necessarily the crime and the drugs. The closer you get to Portland, Clackamas County, people are are really seeing that. They're seeing it creep into their neighborhoods. People that are in small business or that work in the Portland area are just appalled by what Portland has become. So I, I hear a lot about that. Do your constituents, we were just talking to Senator Armitage, who represents Senator Johnson's old district. Right. And she, like the language that a lot of her constituents using are like, keep Portland out. Like we don't want Portland coming. Is that, are you hearing that kind of language? Yeah, no one has said, don't Portland my organ, but they all wear the t-shirt, so. Like, <laughs> yeah, so that's yeah. where they're coming from. Um, in terms of housing, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, the, the answer to for me is always a supply and demand issue. You know, our, our land use laws have restricted supply mm. of land so much so that, that, you know, if you restrict anything, like why do diamonds cost what they cost? You know, De Beers controls the flow of diamonds in the world. You know, if you let all the diamonds into the world, they'd be worthless because there's so many that are out there. But by restricting mm-hmm. flow, you can keep the price elevated. And so, you know, the, it's such a simple supply and demand lesson from Economics 101 that I don't understand why the state hasn't pivoted. I don't know why they're not incentivizing like certain types of affordable housing to the extent that they can. You know, there, there are no apartments being built in this area of the gorge. There are like mobile home parks that are being built in this part of the gorge, like the kind of restricting things to, to this idealistic dense house of, you know, a duplex or a triplex or a quadplex to the extent that they can infill. But then they're still pushing single family residences out into areas of, of acreage. And so it's a challenge and it's not just on the housing side. When you get into this land use stuff, we're at a short supply of industrial land as well. And the Gorge has unique challenges because of the National Scenic Act. <laughs> We've got a group that's supposed to be advocating on behalf of not just the beauty and the nature, uh, the natural environment out here, but their number two and, and equal focus is supposed to be economic development. And yet, they focus on one and, and the other goes by the wayside. So when, when DLCD is telling people, hey, uh, you have enough land out there, well, are you considering the fact that, that Google controls 80% of the land that's available land? And so how much hmm. land really have that's available to develop? And can you call that a 20-year supply when one entity has been able to control the majority of that land? So you know, we've got some serious land use things that we're going to have to talk about. But we can't solve housing supply without getting rid of some regulation, some tax, and expanding capacity of available lands. Is it really that stark in terms of Google's land ownership? Is it like that significant? Right now, yeah. And With they're not the allotted industrial land here in the Dallas. They they have uh, acquired that much land yet. And they're not they're using it for their purposes, or they're just land banking it for when they need it. A little bit of both. A little bit about okay. I mean, plans to expand and they have expanded at a timetable that I think people are comfortable with in terms of the commitment and that control of the land. But at the same time, it, it does limit the other industrial potential buyers, other manufacturers from from even being able to consider it. So hmm. I didn't know that. 
Reagan. So one of the other things I think that probably impacts your district and a lot of the districts really in Oregon, because the trees are just everywhere here. That's one of the things that people who are not from Oregon and especially Congress, I think you see Ron Wyden on TV, actually on Fox Channel, talking about how bad wildfire is and how we need better forestry management. Right. And everybody in Oregon has opinions on trees, but the rest of the country doesn't really understand how many trees we have here. So forestry tends to be a major discussion point. Everyone's got their opinion on forestry. You know, what's your view on forestry? And do you have a particular focus in that policy area? When you look at how much of our state is forest, it's 50% of the state. When you look at how much of our state is controlled by the federal government, it's 50%. It's not the same 50%, but it's interesting to to have those two numbers kind of in your head. Also, Mm -hmm. since you mentioned Senator Wyden, I'll take a pot shot at him that I've been very impressed according to his commercials, how much he's done for rural Oregon. It'd be interesting to actually have him truly engage with Eastern Oregon and not just dictate the Eastern Oregon, what he's going to do. But uh, his commercials certainly make it sound like he's doing wonderful things for us. I, uh, I find that fascinating. Uh, showing up to a town hall where you only invite your constituency and people that agree with you that show up and just kind of parrot back to you what you want to hear is not true engagement. But I, I wish we could get some serious people to to run for the U.S. Senate. Somebody that lives in Oregon, somebody that's from Oregon, somebody that shares Oregon values. I truly think of Ron Wyden as a New Yorker that just moonlights as an Oregonian. Back to forestry, it's it's interesting. You know, we we went through a pretty comprehensive review of where we're at during that uh, wildfire group that the governor convened. I was originally on that group, and then uh, when now Senator Finley was in the House uh, with his experience at BLM, I said, hey, I should step aside. You know, you've been fighting fires for 30 years professionally. Maybe maybe you're someone with more experience than I have. And so I, I stepped aside, but I paid attention to what that group was doing. And the governor, I think, identified $4 billion worth of treatment work in the next 20 years. It was $200 million a year for 20 years that she wanted to see treat the million acres that we had that were untreated. And the question, of course, becomes, how do you pay for it? You know, how do you, how do you sustain that type of investment? So the first bill I ever ran, first bill I passed, was a bill called the Good Neighbor Authority Bill. And the Good Neighbor Authority is an agreement that the state of Oregon has with the federal government that allows us to do work on federal lands. And so that money that we banked within that legislative concept that ultimately was passed is about $500,000. And what that money went to was NEPA certification. So you've got this national environment review that has to be done before you can do a timber sale. And so ultimately, any timber sale through the Good Neighbor Authority has to be added. It can't be something that's already in the pipeline. So the Good Neighbor Authority truly is doing extra projects. So what other states have done, like Idaho and uh, I think it's Minnesota, uh, they've been able to build this kind of pot of money to where you do the timber sale and then that money goes into the pot and then you use the pot to do the next NEPA certification and then that gets the next sale and you have this revolving kind of credit line within your budgetary process to continue to do more work in forestry and that was my hope so the first year we passed the bill we got some money allocated they did do five specific projects that they got through with that money 
And of course, ODF came back and they were like, this was fantastic. This was a success. You know, they, they called the, the money, you know, the 4118 uh, based on the bill number money. And so something they came back to me and said, that, you know, thank you for doing that. This was great. And so I worked with David Brock Smith to then create a budgetary bucket to where we could start to try and create this cycle and just never really got buy-in from the majority party to want to do that. And so it's something that will continue to, to play Gorgonians, you know, the, what's the, what's the saying, uh, you know, harvest it, pick it or watch it burn. I can't, I can't remember, <laughs> you know, it's something like that. And, uh, and that's kind of where we are right now. We're just in this vicious cycle of fighting fires and, and they are intense. And to the extent that, you know, people want to point to climate change, you know, I really do want to point to mismanagement. We have all this undergrowth. We have, you know, timber sales that are through the NEPA certification that should move forward. And then because of our laws, somebody can come along and, and sue the state or the federal government, put a stay on that timber sale. And what we had experienced here two years ago down in South Wasco County was literally a area of land that was supposed to have been thinned through a timber sale that ultimately caught fire. And it was because somebody sued and stopped the timber sale. And the fire may have still happened, but they're not as intense and they're not uh, mm-hmm. able to, to grow the way they can when, when there's that much fuel. Two quick thoughts on that. One, if you haven't, you should check out Governor Kitzhaber's presentation to the Board of Forestry a few months ago, where he, he actually uses similar language to what you just said about forest management practices contributing to where we are now. And how he, he thinks there's an opportunity con- to connect wildfire policy, forest policy, and housing policy together to try to create a market for some of the less desirable wood products that come out of forest management practices and ensure that the, the wood is processed in Oregon, creating more jobs, and that we dedicate the use of those resources to building housing, which gets to your first point. It's, it's, a, it's a big, large, complex idea, and I don't fully get it. In fact, I tried to cite it in my Willamette Week interview, and they just like roasted me because I did not understand the details well enough. But that, that was my first thing. And then I was also curious if you've ever spoken to or former Secretary of State Phil Kiesling about forest stuff. So I don't know Phil Kiesling. My brother, who was a poli-sci major at U of O, actually worked on the Phil Kiesling campaign when he ran for <laughs> state. So I should have an in if my brother Kevin would introduce us, but uh, yeah. I, I've never met the man. I, you, I should, you should talk to him too. He had an idea. I thought of him because he introduced a concept to me with a similar like financing mechanism to your idea. He, I think the bill passed in the 90s, but the very next session, boom and bust cycle, they took all the money away. So I don't know what the state of the program is, but basically the pitch is essentially, there's a bunch of land in Oregon that is perfect for growing forests on that is not currently being used for agriculture. So it's basically just sitting there and it's got like brush growing or like types of trees that aren't super helpful ecologically or um, economically. And so the pitch is basically like get a one-time legislative allocation of a certain amount of money to, and and these are privately held lands, I should say, they're owned by private owners. Get the legislature to allocate money to go plant a bunch of coniferous trees across all these, like it's literally like I want to say millions of acres, it's tons of land in Oregon that fall in this designation. And then the landowners have a couple of choices. One, they can just let the trees grow if they want that to happen. That's carbon mitigation. That's awesome. And eventually when an owner comes along and decides to do harvest, 
they pay a certain percentage of the profits that they make back into this pot of money. And so you just create this cycle of like more trees growing across the state and more production. And it's not an, it's, it's still a net gain. There's no net loss from the program. So I thought of that when you were explaining the financing mechanism. And I think that's fantastic. Uh, I'm curious, like when you mentioned Kitzhopper's idea, you know, one of the challenges that exists today, Highway 97 used to have 23 mills along the highway, you know, from it's, you know, runs from Washington to California and across Central Oregon. There's one left down in Gilchrist. So part of the challenge with how do you entice the state back into this enterprise is getting the folks from industry to say, I'm willing to invest the millions of dollars to start the mill back up with uncertainty as to whether or not the next administration or the next group of legislators comes along and says, no, wait, we're back to being anti-harvesting of trees and you're back out of it. Well, now I just invested you know, $14 million to get this mill back up and running and, and I'm out because... I ran it for two years with success and you're telling me you don't want to be in this business anymore. So, you know, part of it is going to convince industry that we're committed to long-term harvesting of, of timber. And, and I do think, you know, the, the fact of the matter, there are more trees in Oregon today than there have ever been in the history of the state. Mm. More trees planted, more trees growing. It, it, it's just areas where there weren't trees before that we now have trees the way we've carpeted the forest, like we've jam-packed trees in together because you can't harvest anything with a certain diameter. And so trees are growing closer together and, and there's smaller trees. And, and the reality is if you want the old growth timber, I think anybody that knows the forest, you actually thinning will help you get bigger trees. When trees aren't competing for nutrients from the soil or for sunlight, you know, they have the opportunity to grow bigger um, broader, taller, all those things. So, you know, forestry is an interesting topic. It, it's something that, that I do think Oregon could just be the worldwide champion of. Still, you know, top production export uh, good here in the state of Oregon, but we could just be world renowned for it. Instead, you know, we're, uh, in, in my opinion, you know, clinging to an industry that, that should just be thriving. So now for our most important topic, as podcast host Ben and I love other podcasts, or at least I do. I don't know about Ben. <laughs> I do, um, yes. I think he probably listens to all the NPR podcasts. Um, <laughs> so full disclosure, I designed the artwork for your podcast, Main Street Politics, with Representative Daniel Bonham. What was your, just tell us like briefly, what was your experience about starting the podcast and then having it? Well, my, my staff at the time, Dylan Amo, was just trying to be creative. Like, how do we reach different people? You know, you, you go on the radio when you're back home, you're familiar with that media, you know, could we do something like that? And so he did the research and, and Dylan, you know, bought the equipment and we just started kind of brainstorming about what, what we would do in terms of approach. And I think at first, because I was so new to the process and I had so many people say, hey, I'm curious, write a book about how you got involved or write a book. And I was like, I, I don't have an interest in that, but I thought I could start to interview people along the lines of why do you do this? Why do you feel compelled to do this? Who should want to do this? Is there an ideal candidate as you're recruiting? Mike McLean, you know, was leader at the time, you know, are you looking for anybody in particular? You know, what compelled you to get into this interview? Cliff Bentz, Newt Bueller, uh, 
Bev Clarno, Betsy Johnson came on the podcast. I've had you know, Peter Courtney, one of my favorite episodes I've ever recorded. <laughs> I that love one, that one. <laughs> I'll stress me out because I I hosted, uh, I was vice chair of business and labor. And so uh, every, I think it was Monday at 1.30 before our two o'clock committee hearing, I hosted a call with my fellow Republicans and a few people from industry to try and you know, make sure we were aware of everything that was in the bills and what we were planning on doing for the upcoming meeting. And so we planned this interview with Peter at like noon. And I thought, 45 minutes, right? That's how long you want a podcast to be. At 1.30, we're still recording. And I was enjoying <laughs> so much. I was like, I'm not going to walk away from this. But I tried to do this real quick to send Shelly, you know, Shelly Bossart Davis to say, hey, run the meeting for me. And by the time I... Because he looked over at his staff and I sent the text. And by the time I set it down, he caught me. He caught me. And he's like, oh, oh, bottom, you got more work to do. I get it. You don't want to be doing this anymore. You got, oh, got places to be. Oh, I guess I better go. I'm sorry for taking up too much of your time. Like, oh, Peter, like, no, I don't want to insult you in any way, shape, or form. Like, I, I just... That dude is so awesome. Uh, he's, again, you talk about characters and the building and whatnot and and i always hear people talk about the swamp in dc and the swamp in salem get to know some of these individuals on a personal basis and you can disagree with their politics all you want but that dude is dynamite he uh we had My, some family health issues and he was like i'm there for you i know people know hsu let me make some calls on your behalf like he oh took goodness. the time to walk over from the senate to come find me and, and talk to me about this personal family health issue we had. And I just, I was touched and, and he's just a great dude. I, you know, I don't agree with everything he's done politically, but uh, I would go uh, walk through five miles of snow, staring at the sun the whole way uphill to, to take care of him if he ever needed anything from me. My, uh, I know Reagan, we've got a hard stop coming up soon, but my, um, my Peter Courtney story is I was a staffer for Val Hoyle when she was majority leader. And Val was in with, I don't even know, she was in her in a meeting in her office with like a constituent or something. And Peter Courtney comes walking across that sort of outdoor walkway. He comes into the office and he's like, I want to talk to Val. And so um, <laughs> Val's scheduler gets up and says to Val, Senate President Courtney is here and wants to chat with you. And Val says, okay, give me one minute to wrap it up. And she comes out and says, one minute, she'll be ready in one minute. And he waits for maybe 15 seconds. And he says, I get it. I get it. I'm not important enough to talk to the majority leader. That's fine. That's fine. And he goes out and he starts walking across the hallway. So Val comes out, chases after him, after the walkway to go talk to him. And I was like, I could never tell if he was serious, if he was being self-deprecating, if he was joking. Like, it never was quite clear to me what was happening. All the above. <laughs> yes. Yes. And the, one of the greatest things that will ever happen, and maybe you in, in 30 years, you can go back when uh, everybody that he, you know, maybe he's, you know, passed away or uh, or left Oregon or whatever it is. And all the people he talks about are gone. And then because that podcast episode is only 45 minutes long, which means there are some stuff that's never been heard that won't be heard for decades. That is probably just awesome that no one will ever know about. I'll tell you straight up, it'll never be heard. Um, <laughs> it's already been the burned. He came into the room and he took a jab at me right off the bat. <laughs> so 
And so I was prepared. Like I had some <laughs> written lines. I had done some research with Roger Byer and other people that had served with him. And so I turned around and I slung mugged right back at him. And he was like, oh, I see how it is. You bring the Democrat on here and you just. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, hey, buddy, you started it. And so he said something else. And then I teased him about being a career politician. He's like, really? Is this the way you do this? And I said, I said, oh, hold on. I said, time out. I said, I forgot to tell you, like, literally, we're going to go back. We're going to edit this whole thing. We're going to chop it up. We'll make it sound like it's a streaming conversation. But if you say anything you don't want said, I'm not publishing that. And I never will. And we did get into a few topics where he called me the next week and he said, and it's like, I really wish we hadn't <laughs> talked about that. Like I got home and I told my wife and, and then what made me happiest was, was when we finally did publish it, his wife listened and he wow. called me and he said, I just want you to know that my wife says that you're a class act. I refuse to listen to it because I, <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing. but uh, she says that you did a good job. And that made me happy. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I think that is all the time we have for this interview. But Representative, I want to say thank you for making time. I know this is like peak campaign season. You got a lot of work to do in your district. And so we appreciate you making time to, to chat with us. And after the election, we'd love to have you back. Reagan, any closing thoughts before we let Representative Bonham make a plug? I want to know if you could pick one political figure from American history that is like mm -hmm. your icon or your who you're trying to measure up to or even just try to emulate a little bit or or you just admire who would you would you pick there's no greater inspiration than ronald reagan like there just isn't i i'll still go back right now if i've got a long drive and i'm driving through an area where i don't have good reception i know i can't make phone calls and i'll download like a youtube speech <laughs> and i'll just listen to him talk you know he did a national broadcast on education i pulled that up listened to that for like an hour he's just awesome. And, and, you know, the people that I have had the opportunity to meet Condoleezza Rice, holy cow, like brilliant, man, why aren't we electing people like this to, to be president of the United States? Like I, one, she's too smart. She wouldn't do it. Right. She's like, no, thank you. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, there's been some awesome people that I've had the opportunity through my days at Evergreen and then just now being part of this gig it's been fascinating to see you know, some doors open up to, to get to meet people. But, uh, you know, you might think I'm a little silly, but it is an honor to be friends with Christine Drazen. She's phenomenal. Uh, I think the world of her. Shelly Bossart Davis is another wonderful friend and, and colleague. Our caucus has just been neat. I, I came in at a fun time with some savvy veterans that have been there for 10, 15 years and then a whole crop of new people that were just trying to discover what this world was. And so I'm thankful for those relationships. And uh, yeah, I think, I think someday we'll look back and say, I knew Christine Drazen win. That's awesome. Well, Representative Bonham, where can people find you? DanielBonham.com. Seven years ago, I picked up all the domain names that had all that's my smart. family names. And uh, now all of a sudden it's actually handy, but uh, that's the best. And then my cell phone numbers on everything. If I've sent literature out, you've got it. If you get onto my Facebook page, you've got it. People have been really kind and, and thoughtful in terms of the way they've engaged with me on my cell phone. So, so long as people are cool about reaching out at appropriate times, I'll keep having it public. Uh, and, and then people will track me down on Facebook Messenger. Like there's plenty of ways to get me, uh, hopefully. Uh, you'll be able to track me down in January in Salem in my new Senate office. 
All right. Sounds Thank good. you very Thanks much, so much. Representative Bonham. We'll see you next time. Thank you both.